0: The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything
1: from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from The Guardian Network. You know the old saying, a penny saved is a penny earned? How many pennies would you earn if you skipped your next venti iced mocha half-calf latte or that burger that needed five napkins? Over a lifetime, they add up. Like putting a kid through college add up. Find out where your priorities lie by playing the cash-dash at livingconfidently.com play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by a one of the newer members of the Ritholtz Mafia, uh, Nick Majuli, heads up data analytics and is the resident numbers guy at Ritholtz Wealth. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so... I want to, you know, I start out every episode with sort of this free form question about what, tell me something interesting about you that's not on your professional bio. But with you, I want to ask you a little bit more of a pointed question in this vein. Uh, Nick, were you or were you not a metalhead at one point?
0: Yes, I was a metalhead. That is that is correct. And if you if, that, if that's the question you were going to ask, I would have uh, answered it in that exact way. Um, <laughs> and I still am. I still like heavy metal. Now I just cut the hair. Um, but yeah, back in middle school, high school, used to have long hair. Had it for my first year of college as well. Um, played a lot of electric guitar, a lot of guitar solos. You know, Iron Maiden, Metallica, all that stuff. So um, yeah, that's probably my most uh, interesting thing. That's not on the bio.
1: So I, I really want to start a fin twit band. Uh, frequent listeners of the show will know that I was in a punk band called Society's Hemorrhoid when I was in when, when oh, I was oh in high- <laughs> Yeah. And know what's even better was we miss we intentionally misspelled hemorrhoid. We spelled it phonetically because that's how mm. punk we were. So mm. that that will just <laughs> because spelling it correctly is not punk rock. So anytime you want to start a fin twit band, I'm I'm there for you, man. Okay. Oh, wait, what did you play, by the way? I'm bass. I'm bass. But I can okay, play guitar, perfect. too.
0: Perfect. Well, um, uh, Matt Laurius here at RWM uh, plays drums. He's one of our advisors. Uh, he plays drums. So that's like, that's, you know, we're 75% of the way there. We've seen a singer. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, you, we're not doing video here, but I have a Matt Black Les Paul here, right, right here, a very goth-looking mm-hmm. a Matt Black Les Paul hanging on the wall behind me right now. So I'm, I'm ready when you are.
0: Okay, well, put it put it on the calendar sometime. We'll, we'll figure it out in the future. Perfect.
1: But enough about metal. Let's get down to finance. So uh-huh. um, I want to start with a little bit of a philosophical question. There's a piece in in my newest book, the Behavioral Investor, which was one, one of the most mm-hmm. shocking pieces to me. It'll take a, a little bit of setup. Uh, but but in this, uh, in this study, there's a famous uh, psychological study called the Ash Experiment that we used to think was all about peer pressure. It was first done in, I think, the 50s and 60s, and it mm-hmm. was done by a guy named Solomon Ash, and it, it showed a line on the left uh, you know, of a certain length, and then it showed three lines on the right. And the goal was to match the, the line on the right that looked most the li- like the line on the left. So it's as easy mm-hmm. as can be. Like, I mean, you know, my, my five-year-old could do it. Um, but, mm-hmm. but the wrinkle that they threw in was that they had confederates of the experiment who, who you could hear responding. So there are, let's say, seven people who are in on the joke and giving the wrong answer before it comes to you. So you're the eighth person in line. You've heard everyone else say that the answer is B. When you know the real answer is C, so when it gets to you, seventy six percent of the time, uh, you know the person who's not in on the joke gives gives the wrong response, and so we used to think that wow, this this last person is just you know getting suckered into this through peer pressure, uh, but mm-hmm. what we now know is uh, when we measure brain activity in the in the Ash experiment. We know that they're not just getting suckered in by peer pressure because the parts of their brain associated with sensation and perception actually change. They actually, that's the most active part of the brain when you're doing the Ash experiment. So the hypothesis is now that that social pressures and belief actually changes vision which is kind of trippy, uh, and X-Files. Mm-hmm. So all of mm-hmm. this is a lengthy setup to say, you're in charge of data, right? You're in charge of data for Ritholtz Wealth, you're in charge mm-hmm. of, you're out there sharing this great stuff with us every day. Uh, but in this mm-hmm. era of fake news, how do you think about creating and disseminating data in, in such a way that it has maximum impact but doesn't fall prey to, to bias?
0: That's a very difficult question because like, the bias is not going to be on you. The bias is going to be on the other people. Like, I, for example, can look at a chart and be like, oh, this makes sense to me. I see what's going on here. I understand the story. And someone else can look at it and come to a completely different conclusion. And the chart, I really think, solidified this for me. And it was just so obvious. I watched it happen in real time. I don't even know if you remember, but Michael Batnick put out this pie chart, this famous pie chart that went viral on the it got like 6,000 likes, remember. a bunch of retweets. And basically what the chart showed, it showed the top five companies in the S&P on the right side of the pie chart and basically taking up 50%. And then it showed the bottom 282 or something companies on the left side of the pie chart, taking up the other 50%. And what he said was the top five companies represent as much value as the bottom 282, Right which is nothing that crazy, but it was just interesting. Okay, top five companies, same as the bottom 282. Now, obviously, it leaves out the other, however, couple hundred companies that weren't included, which is the middle. That that big middle piece was not included there. Um, And 213, the 213 weren't in there. But as soon as he tweeted it, I literally watched people create the story. You know, big techs eating the stock market. This is happening. Now, look at techs eating everything. You know, they're too big. We need to break them up, all this stuff. I started watching that happen but that data doesn't actually tell you that like that just tells you those happen to be the five biggest companies, but maybe those five big companies were always like, there's always just going to be some five big companies. It may not be tech. Maybe it's something else. And if you actually look over history, going back to the eighties and even earlier, the top five companies or top 10 companies in the S and P the share that they hold in terms of total market cap is pretty consistent. I mean, it it varies slightly, but it's it's not like big tech at the stock market. is isn't really the story there. It's just like the tech happens to be big now, but it, It's going to be something else in, you know, 30, 40 years, who knows, you know? So I think a lot of times it's really difficult to like create a piece of of visualization that only has one takeaway. I mean, sometimes you can do it, but it's tough. I mean, so I don't really know how to answer that question to tell you honestly, like just try to be honest with what you're doing. Don't commit chart crimes and do your best. Like, I I really wish I could tell you to do that, but there's nothing that's foolproof. People are going to see what they want to see at the end of the day.
1: Well, yeah, that's, you, you know, you talked about chart crimes, and if I'm remembering the Batnick mm-hmm. piece correctly, I think, you know, uh, someone tweeted out, you know, is this a chart crime? And it's, re- you know, relatively evenly split about, you uh-huh. know, w- whether what he did was sort of egregious or not uh, with, with respect to it being a, a, a chart crime. But yeah, you make, you make a great point that, um, you know, I, I get frustrated when people uh, say things about, you know, well, you know, data is data or, you know, because science because the, I think the more you understand about data and the more you understand about science, uh, the more you realize that you never walk through the same stream twice with respect to the interpretation of of the kind of, of information that you share every day, and that that's going to land on the you know hearts and minds and eyeballs of all of your readers in a different way, uh, depending on you know uh, an, any r- number of variables, you know, what they had for lunch, how they're feeling, how tired they are, you know, their psychology, how they grew up. So it's a fascinating thing. And I think as, as market participants and as market researchers, it, it behooves us to be honest uh, about the ways, about the limitations of data and the ways that even, you know, highly mathematical data-driven concepts still get perceived through a psychological lens. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's, com- that's completely on base. So um, when you you know one of the things that I find myself guilty of and something that I'm always trying to to do with respect to my participation on social media and, and financial social media in in particular is expose myself to to new data points and, and new ideas. I'm, I'm beginning, uh, you know, I think the the upside of this little this this thing of ours is that that a very nice community is developing, uh, but I think that's a, a two-edged sword as well, because I, I also can see in many respects that financial Twitter is becoming a bit of an echo chamber. So how do you look for, for new ideas and, and ways to challenge your own thinking?
0: Uh, so this doesn't, I mean, I don't do this as much with finance um, as I used to, because a lot of the stuff I know, like a lot of my beliefs about things are pretty solidified. I mean, obviously I Like I might like, for example, I didn't used to believe in a lot of things that I now believe in because I've been reading a lot over the last few years, but like, I basically just, I don't know. I just try to read as much stuff as I can and varied opinions. For example, I didn't used to believe in trend following or factors or any of that like two years ago, but now I believe that there's some validity to them and that they work. So how do you do that? Like I think this is more relevant in something like politics where it's far more polarized and like you just try to follow people on both sides and really like, understand their arguments and i think a lot of people will always say like it's one it's one or zero one one way or the highway you know for anything and a lot of times it's really a gray area and it's very complex you know and so i think you just got to go out of your way and do it like for example like this is you know like i follow the, some of the crypto people who i don't really agree with necessarily but i follow them because i'm trying to understand like is there something that they know that i don't know and like once i have a different piece of logic in there maybe it'll it'll click for me in a different way so that's what I've done, really. That's kind of the way I do that.
1: So, you know, it's it's so hard to change minds. So if, if you don't mind, how, how did you become a believer in concepts like trend following? And, you know, what why were you skeptical at first and what what brought you around?
0: I mean, well, think about So trend following, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to get some simple price signal or some like, let's say, a 200-day moving average. Like, okay, that's going to tell me when to buy and sell. And I was like, okay, like, that could work maybe. But, like, you know, what if it stops working? And the issue is like, it will stop working for short periods of time. It doesn't mean that it hasn't, it doesn't mean that trend following doesn't work anymore. It's just, there's going to be times where you're going to underperform. And I, once I realized, I think it's really from Corey Hofstein more than anyone. He's really taught me a lot. The whole idea is like the reason it's so, the reason it works is because it's so hard to stick through these long periods where it doesn't work where it doesn't look like it's working, I guess was, would be the correct way of saying that. So when it doesn't look like it's working, that's when people give up hope. And that's the whole reason it works, you know? So like that's true of factors and and trend following and all these things. Right. So it's like that behavioral idea is what I needed to believe in all the other stuff, you know, And it's kind of, it's, and uh, yeah, I've looked at a lot of data. I've run a lot of these things myself and we have a tactical model at Ritholt. And so I've like actually looked into it and like how we do it and run back tests and stuff. And, and I believe they work. And I, at least they work for, what they're supposed to do. I mean, I don't think trend following necessarily is going to always outperform the market. Like there'll be long periods where it won't, but for what it does, it can reduce volatility. And I think there is a, there's a case to be made for that, which is why we use it.
1: It's, it's interesting. i I find myself in a, in a very similar situation. I mean, I came, I came to the world of finance from the outside in being a, you know, a clinical psychologist by education and, you know, didn't mm-hmm. have much of an idea about, about any of this stuff. But, you know, as I started researching this, you know, 12 years ago, it's like, you know, I, I first was sort of a Buffett acolyte. I think he's sort of a gateway drug for, you know, for many of us. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, fundamentals and this is how it works and value investing and saw anything technical, anything to do with trend following or momentum as, as so much voodoo. Um, but, you know, I've, I've really come all around. I've really, really changed my mind. And I see how those things work hand in glove now. Uh, but, you know, it took it took reading a lot of smart people like Corey and Cliff Asness and others, uh, for, for me to change my mind. But I think it's an important thing to do is to, to seek out these different perspectives and be open to having your, your perspective changed.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like, for example, I don't really believe too much in technical analysis for the most part, but I do follow these people. And I think if I found the right, like I want to, there's something out there where if I found the right, you know, piece of logic, the right blog post on this, I could start believing in some of this stuff, but I'd have to, I don't know. I just need to be convinced more. I just need more, more information to to make that jump for me.
1: Yeah. And Well, I thought your crypto example was great, too. I mean, I started, I, I remember the first time I heard about crypto, you know, r- relatively early on because I had a buddy who was very, very involved in it uh, and, and is very rich now. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I remember hearing about it and just thinking like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, like this is just, you know, magic internet money. Uh, and you know i i've i've learned a lot since then i'm not i not candidly a a, a big crypto guy and you know don't don't mm. still have a ton of faith in it but my understanding of it's matured uh, thanks to you know, thanks to I, I've attended conferences, you know, spent some time with Patrick O'Shaughnessy's really detailed uh, look at that on his podcast, and, and came away with a, a deeper and more nuanced understanding for sure. Uh, even even though my my stance on it hasn't changed a great deal, so um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, w- I want to talk about uh, you're a you're a prolific blogger, great writer, and I want to talk about a couple of your posts that that really spoke to me. I want to talk about your post, The Most Important Asset, which I thought was really just fantastic. Uh, you you start with a fascinating hypothetical in there. And I actually I actually ran a, a survey based on it, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but mm-hmm. you sourced this idea from Peter Attia. And he says, I would be willing to bet that not one of you, if you were offered every dollar of Warren Buffett's fortune, would trade places with him right now. Um so and says uh, you know. Furthermore, I would also bet. By the way, that Buffett would be willing to be twenty years old again if he was broke. So I ran the numbers. I think nearly fifteen hundred people responded to that survey, and sure enough, only about five percent of people wanted to trade places with Buffett. Uh, but but what? First of all, what's your answer to this question? And what point were you trying to make with by uh, invoking this example?
0: Um, my answer is, of course, I wouldn't trade with Buffett. Like under no circumstance, and you could do 10 X's net worth. You could let me control the whole world. I wouldn't trade places with Buffett. I don't have any, I wouldn't want to do that. I want to live my life. Um, and yeah, 5% maybe 3% are trolls. So maybe the true answer is 2%. So <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> we don't I, know. I sort of <laughs> I thought think. I
1: was like, how do this 5%? It just <laughs> <contrarians>, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, and why did I want to, cause I, I was watching one of the T's talk He's talking about lifespan, he was talking about longevity, things like that. And it just gets you, makes you realize like, you know, like young people, yes, they don't have like riches in terms of assets. Like, yes, you may not have, you know, your million dollars for retirement or whatever, but you have all your human capital, you have time, you have choices, you have optionality, you have so many more things that people who are much older just don't really have anymore. And so when you realize that you realize like, would I, I mean, it'd be fun to be Warren Buffett for a little while, but it's like, yeah, he's, you know, he's in his eighties now. And like, you know, maybe he's got a decade left. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to, this is getting grim, but I'm just saying like, you know, what I'm getting it. It's like, would you want to trade that away for, you know, the possibility to live your own life even like, it's like, you want, you need to kind of just determine your own path. It's not just about getting rich necessarily. I don't think at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah.
1: So I, I love that piece that I loved your piece, the most important asset, because I, you know, I love and, and totally agree with the idea of time being the most valuable asset. And as I, um, save and invest my own money. I mean, candidly, my, my number one goal is is freedom, right? My number one goal is to be able to be left alone, to, to, to you know, to spend my time effectively with my family. Uh, but, but I also find that there's something a, a bit paradoxical as I read this post and, and, and thought about how time is structured over the course of a life. So, you know, right now I'll be, I'll be 40 this year. I, I'd put a high value on my time right now. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm, I have young children who I love to, to spend time with and watch grow up. I have a spouse that I love to travel with and, and speak with and have, have great times with. Uh, but uh, because I have all these things, I also have a, a lot of expenses. So um, 40 years from now, I'm likely to have more time, uh, more money, fewer responsibilities Uh, but also less ability to, you know, less health, you know, my health won't be as good. I'll have less ability to travel and these sorts of things. So how do you think about this paradox of time being sort of least available when it's most valuable?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, it's like the whole like youth is wasted on the young or something like like that. there's and there's some, uh, some quote, something like that, where it's like, when you have like, I wish I had all my assets I'm going to have when I'm 60 now and like draw down then, you know, so I could go do what, you know, anything I want and have that freedom. But at the same time, like, it is a paradox in the sense that like, what do you, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. Like you're right. 40 years from now, I mean, you're going to have more day to day freedom in terms of your time. um, But your total time left is going to be arguably far smaller, right. Than your, than your current time. Right. So I think that's kind of, I see what you're saying like day to day, you're so busy that it's, it's difficult um, to find time to do a lot of different things. I, I understand that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know if I have a great answer for that. That's just how life is, I guess. I mean, I yeah. wish I had a better answer for you, but like, what, what do we do about it? Like I, my whole thing is like, try to strike a balance. So like my whole goal isn't to be like, okay, I just want to have enough money. So like, I'd like, I quit and walk like, no, I'd still want to do something with my time. I'd still want to blog. I would still like doing the stuff I do here at Ripples. I like, I actually enjoy the work of, you know, creating these, you know, doing this business intelligence stuff, creating data reports. I enjoy that work. I really do. You know, now on certain days, if I don't feel good and I didn't want to be in a 9am, that would be nice to have a little bit more flexibility, stuff like that. There's little things that, but it's just on the margin where it's like, what am I giving up for that? You know? And that's kind of more how I think about time in that sense. I like, try to find a good balance where, you know, you, you still spend time with your kids and maybe you don't spend as much time at work now, but you realize you're going to have to probably work longer as a result of that. And that's, that's okay. I think.
1: Yeah. I, I watched a TED talk of a guy who takes every seventh year off, you know, his thing was, you know, most people work till they're 65 and then they, you know, whatever, golf, golf for 20 years. And mm-hmm. he said, look, I'm just going to work a little bit longer. And and every seventh year, I'm going to take a, take a gap year and just, you know, go, go live somewhere else and go see the world. And I thought, I thought that was an interesting way to, to structure a retirement. Um, you know, but I like what you said too. I think, I think we have sort of a, a flawed idea and I think some of this flaw was even implicit in the way that I structured the question. Um, you know, we have this flawed idea that like, oh, you do stuff you hate for a while. You know, you 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 endure this pain and then one day you'll, you'll cross the finish line and you'll have enough money to, you know, to do the things you really want to do. And I think a, a more integrated approach like what you're talking about is, yeah, sure, we've all got, you know, meetings we don't want to go to or whatever. But, you know, if you're doing work that you enjoy, uh, the trade offs aren't aren't quite so onerous, and it doesn't it doesn't feel quite so bad. So I think that's an important uh, paradigm shift. Yeah, I
0: completely agree. Like the best retirement book I ever read was called uh, How to Re- Retire Happy, Wild and Free, and that whole book doesn't even talk about money, which is kind of crazy because like everything in retirement is about money, and it just talks about like you don't need to worry about a financial crisis, you know, worrying about an existential crisis. Like, what are you going to do once you're like quote retired? And like, you can do the beach stuff, vacation, that's, that probably gets boring after about a year. Or so it's like, think about your time and what are you going to do then? And so like, maybe it's better to like work a little bit longer or have a different, you know, there's different approaches, I think, which are better than the traditional view of retirement, in my opinion. But I, I could be wrong. Every person, it's, it's up for every individual person. Some people I know would literally be happy going to the beach every day, like for the rest of their lives. And they would never be like, oh my gosh, I'm not contributing to society or they wouldn't care. Some people like me would obviously care. So that's my well,
1: answer. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when you think about retirement, it's, it's been, I think, at least as, as popularly portrayed pretty one dimensional. When you look at uh, the research on what makes people happy, um, like having like having fun is, is only one of about five dimensions there, you know, like doing, doing fun mm-hmm. stuff, like golfing, going to the beach, like, you know, the, those mm-hmm. sorts of activities. And the other stuff is like meaningful work, like, you know, close friends, uh, getting, getting smarter, like advancing, you know, seeing yourself mm-hmm. progressing and these things all look a lot like work. So I, mm-hmm. I hope that our uh, understanding of what retirement looks like is, is maturing a bit. And it's not seen mm-hmm. as just like, you know, a day, a day at the beach anymore. Um, mm-hmm. so you get, you give some rules of, of thumb in that, in that piece for thinking about how to determine whether or not to, to trade your time for money. Do you, do you remember any of those?
0: Yeah. So one of the ones I like to use, for example, I used to do my laundry um, myself every time, but then I realized that I could pay someone or you know bring it to a sh- uh, dry cleaning shop and they will do it for me for like 12, 15 bucks a week, you know, and they do my laundry for me. And it's like, think about the, how much time it would take me to do the laundry and the hassle of doing it, folding, all the stuff I don't really like to do. And it's like, is my time, my hourly wage above that? And if it is, then I shouldn't be doing that. So any t- any sort of task where your hourly wage is above what the time it would take you to do that task, then you should outsource it basically. And I just realized that it just makes more economical sense for me because in that hour I could, you know, help contribute to a blog post that could, in theory, make me more money. Or I, you know, I'm working at a job where I could get a promotion or something. You know, what I'm saying. So if you think of it that way, it's a very different thing. Um, so yeah, so I, I really recommend just using that. Um, and then the other thing too is like just think about when you're talking about time and versus money, like anything you would regret on your deathbed, like don't don't save an extra little extra money and have a little bit more in retirement just because like, Oh, I ended up missing my friend's wedding or that funeral or something like don't do any of that stuff. Like just if you can make it, you know, if you're like really on like ends meet, you're trying to save money, maybe not, but like if you're doing decently well and like you have extra money, just take it, take it. Don't worry about it. And, you know, the memory will be more important than the the loss, the loss returns you had. So.
1: It's interesting. I grew up, my, my dad is a financial advisor and, you know, grew up in a very Mm -hmm. sort of thrifty, uh, Dave, you know, Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey, Mm -hmm. Ramsey kind of household. Mm -hmm. And I remember being a kid and like, (laughs) and like literally eating beans and rice every night. And and because, you know, dad was paying off the house and he paid, he paid off our house when he was like 35, you know I mean? He was just Mm -hmm. grinding to, you know, to get out of debt and to put us in a good spot, which of course has a significant upside but, you know, we never took family vacations, you know, we never, we, we really, really were buckled down. And now, um, you know, my, my mom is in poor health and, you know, they're older and they can't, they can't really travel and they really regret, you know, they really regret that and tell us kids, you know, we made a mistake. We were, you know, we were too frugal, um, because now they've got money and, and no opportunity that, you know, uh, and so it's, I think it's a powerful concept to keep in mind. Uh, so I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about another concept from a, from a different piece of yours, a, a post called you have no competition, uh, that, that I really enjoyed as well. Uh, and in there, you, you set us up, you set up the post with, with a conversation. You heard Ken Fisher have a talk. You heard Ken Fisher have, uh, and what it made you realize. Can you tell us what, what did, uh, Ken say and what did that spark in you?
0: So yeah, I was at uh, the Evidence-Based Investing Conference uh, out in California, EBI, which is, which is obviously hosted by Ritholtz, and Barry Ritholtz is talking with Ken, and if you the conversation was very colorful. There's a lot of things I don't really need to go into right now. It's very funny, but um, one of the things he said was like, he's, at some point he said, you know, we have no market share. I'm like, what does, he, what does he mean by that? Like, you're with $100 billion, you're like one of the biggest firms in, in our space, you know? And you have no market share it's like it was almost silly he said well think about this there's about 37 trillion dollars in assets 100 billion over that is what 0.3 you know 30 bips something like that It's like we could disappear tomorrow and no one would notice i mean our clients would obviously notice but like no one's going to notice that happening and i was like oh my gosh that is just such an idea like the biggest firm in our industry there's just and it just made me realize there's so much money out there to be managed and like to really think like yes there's Yes, we technically every every RIA has competition with other RIAs, but at the same time, like if you really think about it, like there's just there's so much possibility out there to think that it's like a very to think in a zero sum way, I don't think is always accurate. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I would frame it. That's what I took away from it. Whether you agree or not, it's a separate question. But it's it was interesting though.
1: No, that's I, I. absolutely agree, and I thought that was fascinating. I thought that evidenced, you know, first of all, a ton of humility on his part. I mean, the man is a the man is a billionaire, <laughs> you know. The man is a billionaire. He's built one of the most successful firms uh, around, and to say like, well, you know, we could disappear and no one would notice is is really something. <laughs> Uh, but it does uh-huh. really help shift your mindset to say, look, there's a, you know, there's enough pie here for, you know, there's enough pie here for everybody. You know, where yesterday's big news was, you know, Investnet buying Money Guide Pro for half a billion dollars after, you know, e-Money sold just a few years ago for $250 million. You know, these are uh-huh. these are similar companies, but there's there's a lot of pie to go around. And I think that's a, a good thing to remember. Um so in the spirit of self-disclosure and, and in keeping with our metalhead theme here, um, I remember, you know, about, I guess it would be about 10 or 11 years ago, when I first set out on my own, when I first, you know, split from the firm I was with there and I set out on my own, uh, I said, you know, look, I'm going to be the guy. Like, I'm going to be the guy in, in the world of behavioral finance. And, and so I need to know my competition. And so, as corny as this is, I literally turned on the the Rage Against the Machine song "Know Your Enemy," and I would do like uh, you know business intelligence research <laughs> on 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 people who are now my friends, right? Like people who I've now gotten to know and, I, and I'm friendly with. But that was sort of my juvenile understanding of, of competition at the time. Like you need to, you need to seek out your competition and, and you need to sort of annihilate them. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you, you come to a very different conclusion uh, in your blog post. Uh, and you give a couple of solid recommendations in the piece for, for viewing competitors from an abundance mentality and, and looking at folks uh, in ways, your competition in ways that can actually help you up your game. What, what are some ways that you think we can do that?
0: Yeah, so I think you just need to look at this and realize that, like, we're kind of all in this together. I think what, what I talked about in the post is like, we're not competing with each other. Like, because the people who read me very likely read, you know, Morgan Housel, they read Michael Batnick, they read Ben Carlson, they read they read all the bloggers out there, right? Very likely. I mean, I'm not, not every single person that reads me reads them, and not every single person that reads them reads me, right? Because I have a smaller audience, but. That's the key. It's like I I know this because I read all those people, and like I'm assuming I'm right, the people that are reading me are probably a lot like me in a, in a lot of ways. So I realize that, and I realize the people that aren't reading me and aren't reading Morgan, they're not reading probably any of us. They're probably just not interested in the discipline. So whatever we can do just to make more you know interest in finance or make finance interesting to more people, that's going to benefit all of us because if if Morgan writes a great post that's about connecting business with some other biology and brings in a lot of people who wouldn't normally finance maybe they'll you know and he says hey check out these other pieces maybe they'll start reading us as a result and vice versa like anyone can bring anyone in i just use morgan because he's you know he's a very good writer but it's like that's kind of what i realized is like no these people are not my competition at all like there's no like yes there's only 24 hours in a day and not everyone's going to read everything but at the same time like People like if you like reading this content, you put out good content, people read it. Like, that's what's going to happen. It's not because, like, oh, I didn't, you know, like they both put out good content. I just don't want to read both of them. I'm only going to read one. Like, no, people will read it. So I, I don't think of it like that at, at all. Like, our real competition is trying to get people to stop not re- like basically people who aren't trying to educate themselves more and learn more about different things and specifically non finance things. If we could, I think the rise of politics, especially in Twitter, has probably done more to dilute thin twit views than than anything else i think i think <laughs> if politics wasn't as prominent like finance twitter would probably have even more people reading and caring right now and that's why i think during the next as soon as the stock market is you know cra- you know crashing again the next time when I have, god forbid whenever it happens that's when we're gonna get a lot more views and a lot more interest and that's when things are going to happen and i've i've personally spoken with a lot of different bloggers and that's what happens like highest page views like colin roche ever got you know jake economic all these people i would talk to them was during the great recession because everyone want to know what's going on. And so literally all the views came in. So that's kind of what I think about in terms of uh, competition in that
1: regard. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you, you made two points in there. One is the one you just said that, you know, realize that the the good work they're doing is helping to increase the interest in your discipline and like, yeah, bring, bring it on. Right. And the second mm-hmm. thing that that you said there is that, you know, looking, looking to people to determine what you can learn from them, looking at your, <clears throat> looking at your competition or your peers and say, you know, what, what do these guys do well that, mm-hmm. that I can emulate? You know, my friend, yeah. uh, my friend Brian Portnoy and I were writing our books at, at the same time, have the same publisher mm-hmm. and the same editor. And so we were, you know, sharing a lot of information back and forth. And I, I can tell you that, you know, seeing, how well he was doing on his book really, you know, helped to sharpen me and and made me up my game, Um, you know, because I chose to view him as a friend and not, not as a competitor. So I I loved that. I loved that piece and and thought it was pretty transformative. Um, So Nick, as as we begin to wrap up here, I'm, I'm doing something new here. So you're, you're only the second, you're only the second person that I've ever done this with, but I'm, I'm returning to my shrink roots here. And so Mm -hmm. in psychotherapy, we have something called free associations, very, very Freudian, mm-hmm. right? So I, mm-hmm. I say a, I say a word or a phrase, and you tell me the first, you know, the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, so here, you ready? Mm-hmm, Yep. Okay. First, first one, funniest member of FinTwit. Anonymous
0: or non-anonymous, or does that matter? Doesn't matter. Or am I supposed to just answer? Okay, I would say Josh Brown or Ramp, Ramp, probably Ramp but they're both up there.
1: <laughs> you're gonna, so you're going to give it to ramp over your boss. That's a, that's a, uh,
0: I'm, I might. Yeah. I might. God, it's so tough. It's so tough. <laughs> if it was a person who's out there, it's Josh for sure. If anonymous, it's ramp. So but,
1: yeah, love it. Okay. Smartest, smartest member of FinTwit.
0: i see. I'm torn between Jim O'Shaughnessy and Jesse Livermore, the anonymous blogger. Both of them are just off the charts in terms of the stuff I've learned from them.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely agreed on on both counts. MMT.
0: Uh I don't know much about that. I whatever Colin Roche says, I just trust him on anything monetary. <laughs> like literally, I I, was, I literally will not even look into that. And whatever he says, I completely trust him.
1: Yeah, so. that would have that would have been my response to <laughs> can't uh, don't, like plug plugging my ears. Okay. And then the last one, president of the USA 2020.
0: It's probably going to be Trump. That's okay. not personal, but I that, I don't want to get into that, but I probably, I think
1: Trump's going to win again. So yeah, just, j- just a forecast. Love it. Yep. So a- as we wrap up, uh, tell, tell us if you would a book or an idea that changed your life that you could uh, help turn other people onto.
0: So this is not really as much to do with finance per se, but I remember early in my career, I was starting to get kind of, I don't know, like complacent, bored. I don't know what you call it. Maybe burnt out. I don't know what it was probably not burnt down, probably more bored. And I read a book called What It Takes by Charles Ellis. So, you know, you've probably heard of Ellis, right? He does a lot of, he wrote sure. uh, Winning the Loser's Game, talks about the tennis analogy, all that stuff. And he's, he's great for all those things. But What It Takes was an incredible book because it, all he did, he talked about the, the best firms in a bunch of, in like a handful of industries. So he talked about, you know, Cravath, Swain and Moore in um, in legal, he talks about uh, Goldman and like banking. He talks about, uh, what are I think it was, it was a capital group and investing. I can't even remember which one it is now, but he talked about a handful of different firms and why they got really good McKinsey and consulting. And he just talked about like, really this is what it takes, the level of dedication. Specifically the, what spoke to me was I used to work at a litigation consulting firm. So I was working a lot with lawyers and stuff like that. And the stuff he, he said about Cravath was just amazing. Like the most amazing story stuff I would hear, like just how they set up their business, how they did everything. Like even how they recruited was insane. They would give offers to people and if the person rejected the offer they would not be upset because they'd say oh obviously we made a mistake in giving the offer because anyone who's not smart enough to realize this is the best opportunity they can have shouldn't be with us so like it's good that they reject. like i I know that sounds really like cocky and stuff but like that is the level of like dedication these people have that's like unheard of like cravat is just they they're insane so um but yeah i just love that book because it inspired me a lot to like you know when I was getting bored and complacent, like I got to work my butt off, and I just end up working so much harder. And I learned so much about data and how to do that properly. And it really just allowed my skill set to just really ramp up pretty quickly, which allows me to kind of do what I do now in a, in a pretty efficient manner. So that, that's what I would say. What it takes by Charles Ellis.
1: So that's that's a fantastic recommendation because I've read Charlie Ellis's other stuff, his in, his investing works, but I'd never even heard of that, and it yeah. sounds like a a better version of Good to Great, like a, a version of Good to Great without all the statistical and methodological problems. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It just talks about different firms and what they did to to do really great work. And it talks about different industries. And the, the the legal one just happened to speak with me because I was in that industry
1: at the time and it really kind of spoke to me. So. Great. Well, if if people want to read your writing, follow you on social media, where where can we find you? Yeah, just Twitter,
0: uh, dollar, at dollarsanddata.
1: So all one word. Uh, just follow me there. My DMs are open. Feel
0: free to message me. Um, I, I respond to people all the time. So message me there. Um, and then my website of dollarsanddata.com. And that's about it. That's where you can find me.
1: All right. Nick, thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian Trademark and the Guardian G Trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018, Guardian.